You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Hey, Chad, who invented beer and how long ago? Oh, <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> I have no idea who invented beer, but whoever they are, they have my utmost respect and admiration. <laughs> well, we have to have a beer or an alcoholic beverage in today's episode. It just has to happen. But let me tell you that the first alcoholic beverage was discovered 9,000 years ago in China, of all places. And it was a concoction made of rice, honey, and fruit. It actually sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? It sounds like sake with honey and fruit in it. Yeah. But the earliest barley beer was actually born in the Middle East, hmm. of all things, which is kind of ironic with today's environments and, and the religious beliefs out there. They found barrels that still had a residue of beer in them that was dated 5,000 years back in ancient Mesopotamia. Wow. So it's a very old recipe and concoction that we still drink today. Almost as old as water. Not quite. <laughs> yes, but it is the greatest sound in the world. That little crack of the can. Yeah, well, I've got to confess, I actually didn't open a beer. I opened a cider because I'm not a... <laughs> not a oh, <laughs> close enough. I'm not a big beer fan, as you know, but this is a great cider. It's a Seattle cider. The ingredients is just apples. That's it. Just that. It's a hard cider. It's a 6.5% alcohol, which is pretty strong. And it's very dry. Very, very, very dry. Oh, that sounds nice. And it's just got apples in it. And alcohol, but it doesn't have any gluten or it's pretty healthy. And what's the name of the brewer? Seattle Cider. It's one of my favorites. Oh, nice. It's really, really good. Yeah. What are you opening over there? I've got a Golden Road brewing company. It's a mango wheat ale called Mango Cart. Oh, that sounds disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> I usually don't go for any kind of fruity stuff, but their Mango Cart is, is really good. And it says here on the can, a series inspired by the iconic fruit cart vendors of LA. Oh, nice. And one of the interesting things about Golden Road is their blonde ale can only be purchased inside of Dodger Stadium. It's the only place you can get it. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah, so you really came prepared. Not only did you bring beer, you know, who can get into baseball. <laughs> That's good, man. You're really prepared for today. I've always got to find a way to work my little interests in, you know? Yeah, so this is going to be our second episode that we're going to be covering a story that wraps around baseball, which I know you're a serious baseball fan, and you told me yesterday that the Dodgers are playing, right? Yes. Yes, they're in the middle of the playoffs right now. They're down two games to zero and play game three of a seven-game series today. So fingers crossed for them. Are they in a bubble like the NBA players or are they not in a bubble? What's the story? They're in a kind of a quasi-bubble. It's not as good as the NBA's. Nice. We did a previous episode about baseball and how the commissioner was basically choking the brand by restricting any of the players sharing any of its content. We'll leave a link to that in the show notes. It was a very popular episode. And today we're going to be talking about a crazy story. When I read about this first, it was like science fiction. I didn't believe it. <laughs> it's like the perfect storm that started from marketers. Marketers can sometimes come up with something that 
blows up in the end. This is a great example of that. <laughs> We're very creative and sometimes to our detriment. Yeah. Okay, well, let's jump in. So over the years, we've seen pretty bad promotions, you know, all the way from Oprah Winfrey and KFC, the great chicken fiasco in 2009. And then obviously McDonald's in 1984, the Olympic scratch off giveaway champion. And then also uh, American Airlines, another episode that we covered which was actually our first episode that we ever did on the Marketing Rescue Podcast. Yes. And one of the most popular today. So if you haven't listened to that, it's a really interesting story that I will give a brief explanation of shortly. Nice. But before I do, KFC, for those of you who don't know, in 2009, Oprah Winfrey offered a free KFC coupon on her website, which resulted in KFC becoming so overwhelmed that they had to stop honoring the coupons, which is obviously... A really bad thing. Mm. Yeah, and McDonald's in 1984 held its We Win, You Win campaign for the Olympic Games, which were held in L.A., and scratch-off tickets were attached to every Big Mac, Large Coke, or large order of fries at participating restaurants, like they frequently do. And users would scratch off the coating, reveal an Olympic event, and if America won that event, the customer could come back to redeem their ticket and get a second Big Mac, Coke, or large fry for free. Mm. But something happened here that McDonald's wasn't quite expecting because the U.S. boycotted the 1980 Olympics in Moscow. Mm -hmm. The USSR and several other Eastern European nations boycotted the 84 games. So because some of the biggest competitors were out. They dominated. <laughs> <laughs> they crushed it. That's funny. They won 174 medals. Oh, my goodness. 83 of them being gold, which was great for the USA, but... Not good for McDonald's. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. They lost a lot of money. Yeah. And then, the, that's funny, during the recession of the 1970s and early 80s, American Airlines decided to create a lifetime pass, which you pay $250,000 for. You could fly unlimited first class around the world as many times as you want. They also sold like a companion pass for like $100,000. You can bring anybody with you. No questions asked. Anyway, there were people like, I think the guy's name was Jacques Vroom, as far as I remember it. And there were just people that completely, I don't want to use the word abuse, because when you eat a lot of buffet, you're not abusing it. You're just doing what you're supposed to be doing. But there were some frequent flyer people that racked up like a million dollars worth of flights a year and basically just crippled the company completely. And it really backfired. Again, it's a really good episode for you to go and listen to if you haven't heard about that before. All this talk about free that then becomes bad. Didn't we read a story recently about an LA Mexican restaurant where if you tattooed their logo somewhere in your body, you could get free tacos for life? <laughs> And then like 3,000 bikers arrived with the tattoos in them. <laughs> you can close them down. So free is not always good. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Domino's, I think, has done a similar promotion that didn't turn out so well. And today we're going to talk about probably the king of all of the promotions that ends up coming back and blowing up in your face. And that is the infamous Tencent Beer Night. So there's a reason why we're drinking while we're doing this. Yeah, yes, to see how off the rails this episode becomes. So on June 4th, 1974, the Cleveland Indians 
host what is now regarded as the worst promotion in history. Tencent Beer Night. That's a bold statement. Yeah, it wasn't the worst promotion in history because of the cheap booze or because it was necessarily an experiment gone wrong. In fact, it wasn't really an experiment at all. Promotions that offered discounted beer during sporting events had happened before. They've happened since. It's a pretty frequent type of promotion to run. And while most of those were all deemed successful, after the 1974 Cleveland debacle, whether that success is attributed to monetary gain or a lack of violence is now a little bit undetermined. But ultimately, like Oprah Winfrey and KFC, McDonald's and American Airlines, the Cleveland Indians proved that free isn't always free. Yeah. And I think there are sporting events that got away with offering discounted booze, like you just said. But in order to truly understand why this is the worst promotion in history, we need to take a little bit of a step back. So a week before the 10 cents beer night on May 29th, 1974, the Texas Rangers hosted a home game against the Cleveland Indians. And Texas won the game 0-3 despite there having been a bench-clearing brawl due to what Cleveland believed to be some cheap plays of the Texas players. And in Cleveland's defense, the Texas Rangers' second baseman, Lenny Rendell, might not have been playing entirely fair. And in baseball, if people think you're not playing fair, that usually starts <laughs> off yes. something that's going to end bad. And in Texas defense, the Indians' first baseman, John Ellis, probably shouldn't have tackled Rendell. <laughs> Still, after Ellis and Rendell went to the ground, both teams definitely shouldn't have rushed from the dugouts and bullpens out onto the field. And as if the on-the-field brawl wasn't enough, six days later, things got a lot worse for Cleveland. Yes. So, shortly before Tencent Beer Night, before this on-the-field spectacle in Dallas, Cleveland was only averaging a few thousand fans a game. Following the brawl, this was no less of a concern. And part of this was because things weren't going very well in Cleveland in 1974, just in general for people who lived there. The city had seen nearly 600 factories close down. They were going through this really big economic recession. Thousands were out of work, which meant joblessness was at an all-time high. With an elevated unemployment rate, the city experienced poverty waves, followed by crime and drug addiction as people started to become more and more desperate. And the city itself was suffering. An excess of factories led to an increase in the levels of pollution. This was before the EPA. And the pollution got so bad that the Cuyahoga River actually caught on fire. <laughs> like, up in flames. A river on fire. Jeez, that's horrible. And that happened more than once, by the way. The city was literally and metaphorically a powder keg ready to explode. A lot of pent-up tensions. So the Cleveland Indians marketing team had to face the facts. The city was quickly becoming a bit of a disaster and people had no money. Mm. So let me think about this. They had a brawl a week before and now they're playing in their hometown and the rivers and the dams are burning from pollution. The population's on drugs because they're all homeless and unemployed. So the marketing team asks themselves, what can draw more fans to this? And they decide cheap drinks, really? 
I mean, it's like a, it's like a recipe for disaster. Cheap drinks also meant that they had to ask themselves how low they can go on the price. Maybe half, or maybe they can make it a dollar, possibly. Or somehow the marketing team landed on 10 cents a beer. Wow. With inflation, that's about 43 cents a beer. Once the word about dime beers reached the public, 25,000 people showed up for the game between Cleveland and all the hated Texas Rangers. And while they might have been hated in Cleveland, like those 25,000 Indians fans, the Rangers liked cheap booze too. So during the home game against Cleveland the week before, the Texans Rangers hosted a successful 10-beer night of their own. Texas Ranger player Jeff Burrows even vouched for his team and the rowdy night that they had. So let's play a quick clip of him and the interview that he had. Last year, our fans had a beer night, and it was a pretty rowdy crew, but uh, there was fights, or at least it's restricted among themselves in the bleachers. Nobody was throwing firecrackers and cherry bombs and uh, rocks and uh, bottles or anything else at some of the other ballplayers. Cherry bombs and bottles at the players. There were some fights, but nobody threw stuff at the players, so it was success. <laughs> as long as it's in the stands. <laughs> Who cares, right? And for all intents and purposes, history showed that this kind of booze was an all right decision for the marketing team to do. And that meant that there was nothing more appealing to fans than an opportunity to hurl abuse at their newfound enemies. Because remember, again, they had a physical fight with these people the week before. Right. And so here, Cleveland player Dave Duncan expresses a similar opinion. Well, I think it was uh, pretty poor timing for a beer night to start with. Uh, after the incident in Dallas, uh, where the two teams uh, fought, um, I think the people here in Cleveland were uh, uh, primed for uh, some action last night. And then uh, on top of that, just uh, uh, led to a very unpleasant situation. So the Indians marketing team just really doesn't take into account that after the team-wide fist fight during the game in Dallas, a new rivalry had been born. In Cleveland, fans were angry about losing their jobs, how terrible their city's pollution had gotten, about the general economic conditions. And so that means there's nothing more appealing than the opportunity to hurl abuse at their newfound enemies and basically have an outlet for all of the horrible feelings that they're having. So given that the idea behind the promotion was to simply attract more customers, essentially, to the game, more fans, the Indians marketing team believed that this 10-cent beer night would go off without a hitch. It always had in the past. It was successful a week ago. But unfortunately, things were different this time. Mm. Yeah, so now we enter the 10 cents beer night, the name of the game. The Cleveland Stadium offered 12 fluid ounces, which is about a can of Lacroix, which is 355 milliliters, cups of a 3.2% alcohol beer for 10 cents each. And again, to put that in perspective, in today's money, that would have been about 40 cents. So you go to the game with $4, you can buy 10 beers. Jeez. In today's money. Yeah. A lot of times for a large beer, it's like $12, $15 for one beer. So they just get on it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and here's the thing, I think, where they made a little bit of a mistake. A limit was put in place of six beers per purchase, but 
there was no limit on the number of purchases one person can make during the game. <laughs> How does that work? You buy six beers and you have two hands. I'm sure they gave you a little tray <laughs> like you'd get at Starbucks. Ah, ah, okay. So you can buy six beers per person per time, but there's no limits. You don't get like a little band that they clip on or... Mm-mm. So imagine you showed up at the game with only two or $3 in your pocket. Then do the math. You can buy 30 beers for you and your friends. Wow. <laughs> this is crazy. And if you do want to do the math, 25,134 spectators entered the stadium. And 60,000 beers were served. And that's what we know of, right? Because also, as you mentioned before, this is a poorer community. A lot of people would actually like sneak in their own alcohol because they still don't want to buy beer there. So to absolutely nobody's surprise, fan became heavily intoxicated during the game. And it started out really small or as small as anything can be in the night that ends in a riot. So early in the game, the Texas Rangers have a 5-1 lead, which, as you can probably imagine, did not sit very well with (laughs) these Indian fans who were, at this point, getting into the middle of the game, already pretty intoxicated. It was almost like for every point Texas scored, the crowd ramped up their misbehavior to a whole other level. Oddly enough, the first outright acts of dissension involved nudity. (laughs) A woman ran onto the Indian's on deck circle, flashed her breasts and tried to kiss the umpire. Mm. A naked man ran onto the field and slid into second base as Grieve hit his second home run of the game. And a father and son ran into the outfield and mooned the fans in the bleachers. And the game took a turn from bad to worse when Leron Lee of Cleveland hit a line drive that hit Rangers pitcher Ferguson Jenkins in the stomach, Ooh. causing him to fall to the ground. Fans in the upper deck started chanting, hit him again, hit him again, (laughs) harder, harder. Oh, man. So as the game continued, the fans continued to cause problems, including throwing hot dogs, spitting at the Texas manager, Mike Hargrove. And at one point, he was also almost hit by a gallon, wait for it, gallon jug of Thunderbird boxed wine, which just shows you that people did bring in their own alcohol. After all, they snuck in a whole boxed wine that they threw at the managers. Fans even started firing fireworks at the Texas dugout, which is always a safe thing to do, while the perpetrators of the specific stunt are assumed to be Indian fans. With how much alcohol there is in the equation, nobody can really say where that came from. You know what I mean? Because everybody was just obliterated, shooting fireworks at people. And then finally, at the bottom of the ninth, Cleveland tied the game up at five. So things started turning around a little bit. Yeah, big comeback. So after nine innings of consuming just amazing amounts of alcohol, one might think that the Indians fans were happy that their team was doing better or that both sides would be looking forward to the overtime for no reason other than to use it as an excuse to keep partying. But no, towards the end of the ninth inning, the situation takes a really big turn for the worse. It starts when a fan tries to steal Rangers player Jeff Burrow's hat. So this fan runs out onto the field and going to confront him, Burrow's tripped and fell to the ground. Texas manager Billy Martin, believing that Burrow's had been attacked, charges onto the field. His players follow, some wielding bats as they ran right behind him. Oh, dear. Encouraged by the kerfluffle on the field, some violence-hungry fans took the players' altercation as an excuse to fight, too. And... There was a lot of problems with this. One of the really big issues here 
wasn't that people were just drunk and they were fighting. They were actually pulling out knives and chains that they concealed when they came into the stadium and somehow got through security with that. Some of the fans even waltzed portions of the stadium seats that they ripped off and they were attacking players and other spectators with it. And then the second main issue is that when people started pulling out weapons and charging, this actual incident became a riot. Legally, it turned into a riot. Mm. Yeah, and history often frames this story of Tencent Beer Night as if it was the Indians versus the Rangers. But really, the Rangers, Duke Sims and the Indians, Dick Bosman, say otherwise. But I think that a lot of it was manifested through the press and the radio media. Well, the uh, people that I have talked to since I've been in Cleveland, after, before and after, uh, indicate that the disc jockeys and the writers and the TV press media, all, all this thing is saying, uh, well, let's get revenge on the Rangers for what happened in Texas. Honestly, I don't think it had that much to do with the uh, fracas that we had with y'all down there. It was just a case of an awful lot of people being a little bit too drunk, uh, a case of not enough good baseball fans being in positions where they could have prevented it. And uh, just too many too many guys got out of hand. Uh, crowd control naturally was the main problem to start with. I, I wish that we would have had more security, and I wish that some punitive measures uh, would have been taken as soon as a couple of fellas ran out on the field. I don't know what they could have done. Personally, I'd like to have seen a couple of them got whacked on the head. That might have stopped it all. <laughs> Yeah, well, and the funny thing about that is that, you know, realizing that some of the Rangers' lives are in danger as this ride is going on, you know, I mean, you can tell the players don't necessarily hold the animosity against each other, you know, for what happened. And so as it starts to develop, Ken Aspromonte, the Indians manager, told his players to grab bats and help out the Rangers, who are now in serious danger because of all these weapons (laughs) that are out on the field. So when the Indians emerged from their dugout and bullpen with bats in hand, rioters then began throwing those folding chairs, one of which hit Cleveland reliever Tom Hilgendorf in the head. Around the time Hilgendorf was hit in the head, Texas manager Hargrove was involved in a fist fight with a fan and had to fight another one when making his way back to the Rangers dugout. And while players continued to be hit with chairs, rioters also pelted them with cups, rocks, bottles, hot dogs, radio batteries. They start taking all the batteries out of the radios and chucking those at people's heads. Popcorn containers, basically just anything people could get their hands on became a part of the fracas. And eventually Joe Tate and Herb Score who called the game on Indians radio noted the lack of police protection and a riot squad finally showed up to end the brawl. In the end, to summarize the festivities, there were 19 streakers, nine arrests, multiple ambulance calls and four bases stolen. And not like stolen, like, you know, a player, actually the fans picked up the bases and ran away with them. They (laughs) stole them. (laughs) And the crowd's collective hammeredness meant that the game couldn't resume in a timely manner, right? So after all these arrests were made and all the injured were carted off, umpire Nestor Chilak called the game a forfeit in the favor of Texas. And just in case you were wondering, the umpire himself had a cut to his head. He was hit with a stadium seat (laughs) that was holding him. He also got hit with a flying rock in his hand. This was bleeding pretty badly. So we can ask ourselves, I mean, how on earth can this really happen? I mean, was this just a perfect storm or was this just a bad planning exercise? And that's the thing, because somehow 
obviously from a planning perspective, this was intended as a fun way to get fans into the stadium and goes in an entirely different direction given the Rangers and the Indians' aggressive recent past with team-wide altercations taking place the week before. Cleveland's management probably should have thought about things a little bit more in terms of having better security or having some sort of idea of limiting the amount of alcohol that was being sold. And also really thinking about the type of fans that you would be bringing into the stadium. The argument can be made that these weren't baseball fans. They were people that were there strictly for the cheap booze. It wasn't the normal crowd of fans. And so they didn't really care about the effect on the game or the players. They just wanted to go out and blow off steam. And so it's kind of tricky in hindsight to see where everything went wrong is easy looking backwards, but the game against Texas was a perfect storm. There were a lot of things that, you know, you couldn't really predict in terms of the way the fans handled it and the type of people that would show up. There's been other successful promotions of the same nature many times before and many times since. So it's kind of easy to understand how Cleveland's marketing team was able to overlook the impending catastrophe. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't negate the fact that whenever you take a risky action in advertising. And, you know, we talk a lot about being provocative in advertising and the importance of that and really generating interest and buzz. You have to be prepared for whatever the consequences could be of that risky or provocative action that you're trying to incite or to take with people. So maybe they should have had more security on hand, knowing that (laughs) this could have happened. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes. You should prepare for the risks, right? If you know you're going to do something a little bit risky, that's fine. But you also need to be prepared for the consequences of taking that risk to make sure that things don't go sideways. And Carl Fazio, the Cleveland Indians director of sales and marketing from 1974 to 1975 said, quote, if you put on the hindsight glasses and kind of dumb it down, you're missing the context in which we were operating. We were on a mission to save baseball in Cleveland. We were bound and determined to do everything we could. The team, special events, promotions, the whole ballpark experience. We did everything possible to make baseball successful in Cleveland. If we were going to fail, it wasn't going to be because we didn't try things. Can you imagine like how dangerous the roads were afterwards? Like everybody, 26,000 people, well, 24,000 because there's about 2,000 people arrested. So 24,000 people <laughs> leaving the stadium. Can you imagine just the roads? And no Uber or Lyft. Oh, yeah. Yes. This is a really good point. Just because marketing strategies work for some company doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for you. We can all pull from templates as it relates to marketing, but we've got to really think through to that particular brand and that particular circumstance. Otherwise, you'll just run into the issue that the 10 cents beer not run into. If a cheap beer promotion had worked before, what went wrong on June 4th, 1974? When we asked Carl Fazio, the gentleman he just quoted, he said, it was a perfect confluence of events and it was a perfect storm. So I, I think I agree with that. It was what happened before when they brawled. It's the geopolitical environment of that city and then dropping the prices 600% and then just getting everybody together. It's a recipe for disaster. 
one important question we ask ourselves that we do know the answer to is what happened after the riot of the Tenso and Spiranite. First, there were many, many, many monetary damages. You can imagine hauling seats at the players and breaking down the bleachers and stealing the bases. We don't even know what that costs are. We couldn't find anything. But had the stadium sold 12 ounce beers at a regular price of 65 cents, it would have brought in $39,000. But selling 12 ounce beers at 10 cents, on the other hand, only made them $6,000. And, you know, that's where they make most of their money is on concessions, right? It's the food and the beer and the ticket prices generally pay for the expenses and all the profits in the concessions. So there isn't really an estimate of what kind of costs were incurred by the property damage that we know of. But still, given that the stadium's seating had been repurposed as makeshift weapons, it's probably a safe bet to say that even by 1974 standards, there was a significant amount of damage. And in this instance, not only was free or cheap far from being either of those things, but the resulting riot is an example of when free becomes very expensive, both in terms of the actual cost, but also the perception of what it's like to go to a game. Baseball is very much a family sport. You take your kids. Right. It's kind of a multi-generational experience. And so if you can't feel safe that you're going to be able to go to a game, enjoy it, and be able to take your kids and have a good experience, why are you going to risk that? And so then it can snowball the situation even further. The day after the riot, Ted Bonda, the Indians team president, called a meeting. About the meeting, Fazio said, Ted's first reaction was, okay, (laughs) this was obviously a terrible mess. How can we take advantage of this and turn it into something good? Actually, that was the focus of the meeting. Yeah, Jackie York, the Cleveland Indians promotional director from 1973 to 1977, actually assumed that she would be fired after the riot because she was leading this whole campaign. But instead, Bonda sent York and Fazio to Milwaukee to see how the brewers put up a beer night. And in future promotions, Indians fans received a limited number of beer coupons. That's what they came back from speaking Mm. to the brewers. (laughs) And after they visited the brewers, York said, we revisited it, we tweaked it, we continued with it, and I'm proud of the promotion. I'm not proud of what it did. Looking back at the riot, Fazio said, I don't look at it as a black eye at all. I was just one of those crazy things that happened because of the crazy set of circumstances that all came together and happened that night. So that's kind of cool, right? So they learned from it. They didn't just crawl underneath a rock. They actually were proactive going to the brewers and they try to make it better, which is, I think, the right thing to do. The night after the St. Saints Beer Night riot, the Indians and the Rangers played again. The Indians blasted five home runs, pounded the Rangers 9-3 in front of 8,100 well-behaved fans. Very sober fans, I would say. (laughs) Wow. According to Ohio Magazine, who interviewed Fazio, York, and Hargrove, as well as the Indians outfielder Oscar Gamble and press photographer Paul Tepley, none of them remember that second game on June 5th. That's funny. So what did you learn from this, Nico? baseball fans shouldn't drink beer. That's the wrong answer, right? (laughs) Yes, it's a dangerous mix. (laughs) (laughs) You can write this all off and say it's circumstantial and it's a confluence of circumstances and everything else. But I think there are things that we can learn as marketers from this. It's all right to take risk as long as you acknowledge the risks 
NIST states precautions. Like we said earlier, if they're going to offer beer at such a discounted price, they maybe should have jacked up the security. I'm not talking about like having cops with ride gear because that might have created the wrong energy in the field, but they clearly didn't have enough security for this. And I think it backfired. And if those precautions fail or they turn out that it's not the right ones, then they should have prepared for the consequences. They should have had backup plans. I don't think when they planned this, they went down the route to say, okay, what if people start throwing things at the players? Or what happens if spectators charge the players? Like, how are we going to control that? I don't think they thought that through. Right. And the Tensors Beer Night is an excellent example of a marketing promotion that was doomed from the beginning. The fact that they had the brawl the week before, there should have been a little bit of warning lights that went on here. The desire to attract more fans for a marginal success or a similar promotion before took precedence over the possible consequences. And I think that's exactly, I think the marketing team, their main objective was try to get as many people into the stadium as possible. And they kind of like stopped thinking there. They didn't think through of what the consequences could be. Yeah. And at the end of the day, the promotion worked, Mm. right? Like it brought a lot more people into the stands. They sold a lot more tickets. And the day after, somehow... 8,000 people decided to show up at a game where typically there was maybe 3,000 people in the stands, maybe 4,000. So even the day after this crazy thing that happens, there's still enough people that are interested in going to the game and maybe more interested now that you have 8,000 fans show up the next day. So in a sense, it was successful. But while you're trying to thrill and excite your audience, which they did, they generated that excitement, to put on a show that will generate buzzworthy and good feelings, or in some case, an actual buzz, has to be harnessed in such a way that you can move it forward in a positive direction. And to your point, it's important when things start to get really intense. This is just a life lesson, let alone a marketing lesson. It's important to bring the temperature down a little bit. When things start to get out of control, we don't want to double down on the things that are spiraling things out of control. We want to try to bring the temperature down a little bit. And when you get to the bottom of it, this Tencent Beer Night and other promotions that have had similar outcomes all have this same fatal flaw in that they weren't completely thought through. All of the things that could potentially go wrong, to your point, weren't thought through. And that's one exercise that we frequently do when we're reviewing campaigns, when we're ideating campaigns, we spend just as much time on beating up what we've come up with and thinking about every single objection that could come up or potential issue that could arise. We spend as much time on those items as we do on what the actual promotion is itself and how to make that really good. Yeah. And then just finally for me, discount and alcohol is a promotion that has been repeated multiple times since the riot of 1974. But like we just said, more rules are implemented and additional security and understanding the risks and everything else. And I think that is a very important insight. Just because a campaign fails doesn't necessarily mean that you can't learn from that and you can try to replicate it and optimize it, for lack of a better word, and build upon it and learn from it. And I think we see this as marketers around us all day long. We constantly see campaigns and branding exercises and communication and comms, everything that is falling down and is not correct. 
And we shouldn't just wash it to the side and say that was a bad campaign. We should actually try to look at it and try to optimize and build upon it. Right, because it'd be the natural response to just say, oh, not doing that again. That didn't go very well, right? But instead, they deconstructed it and learned from it. Speak to you guys next week. Thanks so much. Bye. You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Kutsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content.